Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. Month of November. Hot chocolate and a small cameo of a child's face. Imperfect only in its solemnity. And these are the improbable ingredients to a human emotion. An emotion, say, like fear. But in a moment, this woman, Helen Foley, will realize fear. She will understand what are the properties of terror. A little girl will lead her by the hand and walk with her into a nightmare. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema, the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host, Jimbo, and once again, I'm joined by ADZ. ADZ, how you doing today? Doing well today, ADZ, in the house, ready to jump into this episode, Nightmare as a Child. Yeah, episode 29, so we're slowly creeping away to the end of season one. So, I guess, without further ado, Eric, why don't you go ahead and take us away? Yeah, and uh, by the way, if you like the podcast, be a friend, tell a friend. If you hate it, just act like it never happened. <laughs> no, if you hate it, tell it, tell an enemy, right? <laughs> yeah, tell an enemy. Make a make a friend of an enemy. I don't know. Anyway, nightmare as what a child. They, what is it they always say? Uh, the enemy of the enemy is my friend, or something. Exactly, <laughs> exactly right. We've got. Uh, hopefully, we'll make a lot of friends in the in our uh, podcast here. All right, nightmare as a child. The Twilight Zone, season number one, episode 29. We are already to episode 29. It was written by Rod Serling, and it was directed by Alvin Ganser. And Jimbo, you may have some information as to why Alvin Ganser, do you remember why he ended up directing this episode? It was supposed to be Charles Beaumont, I believe, but the whole airplane accident, I think we covered that in the Purple Testament. Uh, you're the All right, I... You, I, I mean, I remember vaguely, but I didn't. I didn't write any of that stuff down okay. for this episode. Sorry, so. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to put you. Well, on I'm the just spot. saying. I didn't. I didn't. I know we have some of the same material. So the one book that you have, I didn't go into that book for research. I figured I'd let you do that that book for research. So I use the ones that I have that you don't have. So that way we don't uh, get the same information or, or you know miscommunicate or something. So gotcha. Um, 
Alvin Ganser, the director for this uh, particular episode. Uh, the original air date was April the 29th, 1960. And the total production cost is quite under the benchmark of 50 grand this time. It's at 38197 cents. So if we adjust that for inflation, we're looking at about $339,403.57 in today's dollars. Uh, the technical specs for this particular episode is a 25-minute runtime. The sound mix is mono. West Trex recording system. The color is uh, black and white, of course. And the aspect ratio is 1.33 over 1. And the negative format is 35 millimeter. It's a spherical cinemagraphic process. And the printed film format is, of course, a 35 millimeter. Uh, Jimbo, you want to roll with the cast? Sure. We had. Uh Starring the main character, um, Janice Rule, she played uh, Helen Foley. A little interesting fact about uh, the name Helen Foley. She was actually one of Rod Sterling's teachers, one of his favorite teachers. So I thought that was pretty interesting that she had the name in this episode. Uh, then you had Terry Burnham as Marky, which played the little girl. Uh, you had Shepard Strudwick um, as Peter Selden. And he was in uh, All the King's Men from 1949. He was also in A Place in the Sun with Elizabeth Taylor in 1951. Yes, sir. Right. No, I'm just, I'm just uh, nodding along. Uh, and, by the, with you. and by the way, Marky, uh, Terry Burnham, she was in, and I know Eric's getting ready to do a little uh, deeper dive into her biography, but she was in Imitation of Life where she played Susie, and she was also in Boy Did I Get a Wrong Number, starring Bob Hope in 1966. Uh, Michael Fox. Uh, played the doctor. Um, he's famous for, if you've ever seen Young Frankenstein, he was Helga's father. He was in Over the Top as Jim Olsen, and he was in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Uh, he was the TV commercial man in that. You had Suzanne Capito, who, um, which was Morgan Brittany, uh, Brittany as the little girl. She's uncredited. And then Eric, we had Joseph V. Perry as the police lieutenant, and you know what he was in? Karate oh. Kid 3. Where he, he really? played Uncle Uncle Louie, uh, okay. and he was also in Heart Shots Part Two as a singing waiter. Okay. So, <laughs> All right. Who yeah, was there in, um, you Who was in Over the Top again? His I'm name sorry. is Michael Fox. Michael Fox. Okay, the Doctor. Yeah, I'm gonna right. save some uh, audio of the Doctor actually uh, at the end of the episode. So yeah, you'll hear his voice um, coming through the podcast this week. Um, you want me to go ahead and take the plot next? No, why don't you go ahead and do the little biography of Terry Burnham? Okay. Um, so the bio of Terry Burnham, um, she's the blonde American actress. Uh, she was an actress from the age of four uh, in the mid-50s and all the way to the early 70s. She actually has a pretty sad story in, of, of her real life. Um, obviously, this probably sticks out as her most memorable performance here in the Twilight Zone, uh, and in this episode, she played a blank-faced girl who delivered a, a deathly warning um, here in this episode, and she retired as an actress and was living in Long Beach, California, really after living in obscurity for the better part of her life. Um, she had a lot of um, obsessive fans, I guess you could characterize them uh, as obsessive um, fans, but Jimbo, I don't know if you knew this, there is a twilightzonemuseum.com there's a web page associated with um twilight zone 
memorabilia and sort of things. And there's a curator of this, um, and I, I neglected to write his name down. I think his name is in my notes here. Uh, Andrew Ramage, he runs the TwilightZoneMuseum.com, and he's the curator. And basically, it's a lot of photos of memorabilia and props and things that they put on display here on the on like the website and stuff. And he writes this about her that uh, she had a a very difficult life. Um, she she I got some information here about uh, she attended Mark Twain Elementary School and Bancroft Junior uh, Lakewood High Schools in California. She was a child actress, and she performed alongside some of the biggest names in Hollywood. Her acting credits include roles in television programs like I Love Lucy, Leave it to Beaver, which I watched the episode of Leave it to Beaver. <laughs> if you're interested in, in seeing Terry Burnham, she's in the episode, I think it's in season six, it's called uh, Beaver's Autobiography. Um, and she plays the role of, I think her name in that episode is Virginia, and she's like the best friend of a, a girl named Betsy in that episode. So uh, she was on Wagon Train, and she was in the 1959 Ross Hunter Universal International Pictures film called Imitation of Life. With She was with Lana Turner in that movie. And some sad things about her her life when uh, this is a, just a paragraph here I'm going to pull out when someone dies in Los Angeles County official officials work to notify the next of kin and if no one can come forward they wait for three years and bury uh, the dead uh, the embalmed body it remains in the L.A. County morgue so apparently when she passed away um, she sat in the L.A. County morgue for a long time because there was no next of kin uh, registered to her. So was after, she not married? I don't think she had uh, was married or had any extended family. Any relatives, brothers or sisters? Or apparently, <laughs> according to this. So the unclaimed dead, after three years, are cremated, and then they end up going into a common grave in the county's public cemetery. Anyone can buy the remains that have gone unclaimed for two years, according to the spokesman from the morgue. So fans, including a guy named Reuben Phoebus of New York, worried that Burnham would be buried in a common grave. And according to documents from the L.A. County morgue, Phoebus received authority to have her ashes transported to him in New York. Uh, the charges included $340 for cremation. And even if you don't know the diverse... He says, this is him quoting here, he says, even if you don't know a person, you develop a relationship as strange as it sounds. It does kind of sound strange, but he says, Phoebus, <laughs> Phoebus pursued uh, an autograph from her for about 15 years, and he decided that a common grave was not fitting for uh, Burnham, uh, whose death certificate says that she died of cardiac arrest, but also dealt with hypertension, diabetes, and depression. And then it goes on and says that he kind of became disgusted with himself because uh, here I am chasing an autograph and that this is an actual person and not just an autograph. She's a human being with hopes and dreams just like anyone else. I'm quoting uh, Phoebus here. And then it goes on to talk about how she kind of became a real recluse in her later life and actually ended up living in like a trailer in Compton, California towards the end of her life. Basically, by the age of 22... She was a pretty famous, semi-famous child actress, and I think she was on some Disney shows as well. But she basically fell off the planet by age 22, and she didn't do very many 
interviews at all. She didn't want to be in the public eye in any way, shape, or form. And as the legend goes, someone won an auction for uh, Burnham's storage unit in Southern California. And sources say that this was around 2010. I think she died in 2013, if I'm not mistaken. And many of her personal records, photos, tax documents were inside of the storage unit. Uh, acting contracts and other things went on. You know, they went, uh, the, the storage unit goes up for bid and someone won it. And then um, someone put a lot of her memorabilia up on eBay, I guess. And let me read down a little bit further. Um, this was a good paragraph, and, uh, Terry Burnham did this episode, Nightmare as a Child, the one that we're referencing now, at the age of 10, um, she played a strange little girl who showed up at a woman's apartment to warn her of a murder. Unnerved by her stone-faced child, the woman offered to make some hot chocolate. I'm in no hurry, the little girl replies, unflinching. As it turns out, the woman and the girl were the same person. Born in the mind of Rod Serling and separated by the decades, the girl had watched her mother die at the hands of the killer. In an episode of Psychologic Exploration, the girl caught up with the older, with her older self to warn um, that her mother's murder stood outside, murderer stood outside the apartment door. That role and others brought uh, Burnham a modicum of fame, and she appeared to struggle with maintaining a typical childhood. And she's quoted here saying, I never was fully accepted as part of the group by other children. Burnham told the Long Beach Independent Press Telegram in 1967, If I paid no attention to the jungle gym jibes, uh, they thought I was stuck up. If I tried to return a pleasant answer, they labeled me as bragging. But reports of those who claim to have known Burnham in her early youth are universally positive. So we've kind of, I kind of have woven a little bit of the plot into that bio about um, Terry Burnham. And it's actually kind of sad, uh, her life, you know, and how her real life played out, kind of s paralleling some of her solemnness and wise character that she plays kind of in this episode. So I thought that was kind of interesting to dive into to her life and kind of sad at the same time. And how crazy is it just to get a storage locker and have all that I mean, classic, uh, I mean, just stuff that you would think that why would, if you, if you got that, why wouldn't you hang on to that instead of sell it? Somebody just tried to make a quick dollar out of that, but that'd be something yeah. to hang on to. I mean, not and the guy that, and the guy that went after her ashes, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty a little strange. weird. Yeah, it's pretty strange. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a little weird. I mean, I mean, I guess if you went after her ashes and gave her a proper burial, it would be different, but I we think, don't have the rest of that story. I you know think what I mean? the end of the, I think actually, sorry, the end of the story, I didn't mean to interrupt Jimbo, but the end of the story is that guy, I'm not sure exactly how the details are unclear on, but I think he at some point returned those ashes and she, it says she's married she is buried in a cemetery in california somewhere now hmm. like close to relatives I, I read a snippet there somewhere but i'm not quite sure how that came to be but yeah initially well, said this relatives. guy is that like her is that like her parents it said her mother so okay i'm not it's unclear how that all came to be but yeah it's kind of really sad like you know those storage lockers if you don't keep up on them then they go up for bid. I know people are probably very familiar with like, you know, storage wars. Storage shows, wars. <laughs> yeah, shows like that. But yep. It, yeah. Yep. And so like, I guess her. 
I want to say like her cap and gown from high school was in some of the memorabilia that was mm. taken and like really personal stuff like contracts and photographs. And uh, I know what it was. There was uh, letters from family members were in, in that stash and letters from like boyfriends and things like that. So a really personal stuff that, you know, was just taken and put up for auction no, I, a lot I, of it. I wonder why she left Hollywood, though. Or why she stopped acting? Did the parts just stop coming in, or did she just get burnt out? You know what I mean? No. That's awful strange. No idea. No hmm. idea. But really, Very interesting. really kind of sad, but interesting at the same time. Still not going to change my feelings on this episode, but I mean, it's still sad. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of covered uh, so, the, the, the plot right. um, in that little bio there. So, Jimbo, do you want to... Start us off, maybe. I've been talking a long time. You want to walk through the first part of the episode? Sure. So, so I'll go ahead since I just watched this right before we sit down to record. So we have uh, Helen. Uh, she We find out she's a school teacher, and she's coming home from, um, I guess, school, you could say. Uh, and she goes to this apartment building, and she goes, and as she's walking by, you see this little girl sitting on the stairs. And uh, Helen goes and opens the door and turns around and says, oh, hey, uh how are you? You know, you must be new here. And she's like, uh, nah, I, I guess. <laughs> and so she basically, uh, Hey, would you like to come in for some uh, hot chocolate? Uh, if we find out, I think through Rod Serling's opening that this is set in November. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a little cold outside. So we know it's, it's almost winter time. Um, and I thought it was very interesting that you never leave the apartment building for this episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'll dive into a little bit about why I think that later towards the end of the, uh, the end of the episode uh, with my thoughts of how I was perceiving this. But uh, so she invites the little girl in and, and this little girl is weird. I mean, she is straight weird. I mean, I've met some weird kids in my lifetime, but this one, she's always just sitting there staring off into space. I mean, if you watch the episode, she's, she, I mean, she'll, she'll turn and she'll talk to uh, Helen and then she just sits there and looks off into space. And I was like, this, this girl, she's, she's off a rocker. I could already tell from the beginning of the episode, I'm not going <laughs> to like this kid. And, uh, off a rocker, huh? <laughs> yeah. Off a rocker. I mean, um, so, you know, she's like, well, um, she's like, but, uh, you know, yeah, I'll come in for some hot chocolate. She's like, but, uh, I know you don't, you, you like hot chocolate too, but you don't like marshmallows. And she's like, I don't like marshmallows either. And I'm like, well, this kid is just, she's out there. Uh, so, you know, she comes in and, um, that little girl just comes in and she just comes in and sits down in that chair. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Eric, you can take it away because no, I'm just going to uh, wrap Just one interjection. Kid, it's interesting. Kind of the, the giveaway in the beginning that something is off is that Marky, as we come to find out, will be her name. She knows everything about Helen Foley. You know, everything. Uh, and then one of the things that triggered me too was the first thing that Helen says to her when, like, when they come into the apartment is, "Hey, don't you need to call your mom and tell her what you're at, where you're doing or what you're at or whatever?" And she's like, "No, that won't be necessary." You know, right, and I was it's like, like <laughs> "Okay, well, this is like a ten-year-old kid, and she doesn't, her mom doesn't need to know where she's at." And also another dead giveaway. It, it becomes fairly apparent that you know that it's a small twist. Um, but that this is a younger version of Miss Helen Foley. We'll just go ahead and introduce that right, right up front. And one of the one of the dead giveaways is that we find, I guess it's a little bit later in the episode, but that uh, Mrs. Foley or Miss Foley and Marky have the same scar, burn mark, uh, just below burn their mark. elbow. And, you, you know, they're just subtle clues that 
keep happening as they have this conversation. And you're right, Jimbo, most of the episode is inside of this apartment, which might be have to do with why the budget was so low because they didn't have to really do any other set setups or anything. Exactly. But you know, and then and then and then Marky's like, Hey, uh, you know, you ever see somebody that might look familiar to you? And and Ellen's like, well, you know, I suppose she's like, yeah, like today. Did you see, you know, when you were leaving school, did you happen to see the guy that was at the stoplight in his car, you know, and you looked at him and, and Ellen's like, this kid is crazy. Right. You know Who what are I mean? You? And, then she starts, yeah. and then she starts thinking about it. She's like, well, yeah, there was a guy, you know, that I looked at or whatever. And, and I mean, this kid, she's yes. got... She's like a, a barbecue sauce short of a Happy Meal, okay? <laughs> yeah. what I can tell. She's like, don't you remember? Why can't yeah. you remember? Are you remembering now? I mean, she's just I mean, just badgering this poor lady. Yeah. And if I was that lady, I would have kicked her out of my house right then and there, dude. I was like, okay, you can just go. You know what I mean? Because I'm not going to sit here and let you belittle me in my own apartment or whatever. Yeah. So uh, Helen, you know, makes her the cocoa, and they both sit down and... You know, she is grilling Helen. Obviously, we know, well, we kind of discover early on that it's, again, the younger version of herself. And we come also to find out that Helen has a repressed memory. Uh, I don't want to get, well, I can go ahead and give it away because most of you probably watched the episode by the time you come to our podcast. But she has a re repressed memory of a very traumatic incident that happened in her life. And it seems like Marky is really in tune because, you know, Helen, another scene she goes and she grabs like a uh, like a handkerchief out of her purse and she says, oh, it's really hot in here. But as she's walking over to get the handkerchief, Marky says, are you feeling hot? Are you feeling warm or something like that? And it's almost like well, these not only two that, are in tune with one another. And because but not only that, if you, if you if you if you watch her face where she she asks her what her name is and she says, my name is Marky. And it kind of like the late the Helen just kind of stops yeah. like she's stunned. Like I've heard that name before, but I don't you know, it's familiar, but I don't I can't put one and one together to make two. So right. I thought that was very interesting, too. Yeah. Um, and she'll to come to remember a lot of things uh one of which being that surrounds the name marky that that was what she was called as a nickname um but once she goes and you know takes the little handkerchief uh there's like a knock on the door and so marky little marky wants to run out she's like i, I gotta get out of here i'll come back later um she's so, like he's here i gotta go yeah she i'm going exits, out the back door yeah, <laughs> back window whatever stage left and goes out the back door and then we hear a knock on the door and this is when we're introduced to um shepherd sterwick's character peter selden and he enters the apartment and like one of his first lines is like oh i got you stumped well, actually, he, he gives a little bit of an introduction and description of who he is on the other side of the door. And he tells her, uh, Helen, that he used to work for her mother. Hey, I knew, I knew your mother. Yeah, right. and I used to work for her about 18 or 19 years ago. And he says, my name's Peter Selden. She opens the door and invites him in. They sit down and have a conversation. And All right, I'm about ready to go. I'm sorry, about go ready ahead. to just... Here's where we're getting ready to Drop start going into some stuff that is ridiculous. Okay. If you remember this guy, this Peter comes in and he says, oh, by the way, you know, I, 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 I worked with your mom. And he's like, oh, by the way, I had a crush on you. This girl was 10 or 11 years old. Wait, okay? wait, wait. 
For one, no, let me just get off my rabbit trail. Dude, what is up with this? This, I mean, you'll find out later in the episode that he, I won't spoil it here, but when he sees her, okay, I'm going to have to spoil it just because I have to. Go for it. But he's the one that actually kills her mom, and and Marky's seen this in her bed, okay? And he was coming in there to kill her. This is a grown man. That girl was 10 or 11. This is child molestation to a T. And that really made me mad. That's one reason I do not like this episode. Is And Rod Sterling was always pushing limits, right? Mm-hmm. And But but when he did this, I hated this episode so much more just for that simple fact. I was like, I, you know, I put that together and it just really boiled my, grind my gears, boiled my blood. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think um, he definitely was pushing the limits. You know, I kind of thought, well, as watching this, that definitely stuck out to me as well. Uh, the whole crush I was like, well, maybe crush meant something, you know, language changes over time. And I thought, well, maybe crush just meant fond of. And then, uh, you know, I did a little bit in thinking and like digging in and I'm like, no, um, I think he is setting the table um, of some kind of abuse here. It's very subtle. And, you know, that would make a lot of sense of that traumatic event happening in her life, why she would block out all of her memory. and 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 when he first said it, I was like, okay, well, maybe this, you know, he said he knew her, he knew her mother. Maybe he was just a boy in the neighborhood that ran errands for his mom and all that. You know, I was like, okay, he had a crush on her, you know, a childhood crush. But then when you get to the real, the, 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 the backstory and it shows the flashback and he's still a grown man in that episode or in that part. And then he, he, he starts coming to be- her bedroom or whatever. And she screams and he takes off running. That's when I really had a problem with it. Here's part B to that. He pulls out a photo out of his jacket pocket of her as a little girl. We, you know, it's Marky in the episode, but it's really the representation of her as Helen as a little girl. And he claims, now I don't know, he could be telling the truth, but he claims that her mother gave him the photo. Now, that seems kind of strange for someone's mother to give their employee a photo of their young daughter. Uh, that just doesn't jive. Rod was pushing, I mean, this was probably, well, not probably, it was a very taboo topic that was probably never touched on in general life, let alone, you know, television. Um, so he was pushing the envelope uh, there. Uh, it it doesn't make me not like the episode, but uh, yeah, it, it's uh, yeah definitely taboo for the time. And I picked mm-hmm. up on that as well. Uh, th- but the photo kind of sealed the deal for me, like... This guy is, you know, he's a pervert. And, and yeah, yeah, that's I mean, I mean don't get me wrong, does people give other people it's usually married couples, you know, uh, oh here's our kids, yeah. you know, school picture or whatever. Okay, I get it. But I don't go to work and pass out my kids pictures to my fellow coworkers. Right. You know what I mean? I mean that's just not right. So as we come along, she she offers him cocoa, um if you remember. Mm-hmm. And uh so she goes and grabs the cup, and she turns around, and the cocoa has not been touched. So mm-hmm. she's like, huh, you know, that's weird. Um, that that was interesting she, uh... to me. What, what was your take on that? Do, do you think, because Helen, there's two cups, right? Helen takes right. a few sips and sets it down. So if Marky is her, so there would only be like two sips taken out, but she makes the the declaration like, oh, or, or kind of says off the cuff, like, oh, I thought she finished her cocoa, but it looks like she hasn't even touched it, which would make sense that the cup was still full of cocoa if it really is Helen. And this is just a figment of her imagination that she's created. 
uh, the you know Marky right. see that she had that's touched something her cocoa. that that's something that I think Rod left out that you don't really know. Um, and when we get to the end of the episode, I'm going to throw something else because I think the ending could have been a lot better if they would have did it something else. But um, I I genuinely think that she sees the little girl. I don't think it's all you know. I don't think it's all in her mind. Like um, here, let me you know. I'm making two cups, you know, here's mine, here's yours. And you actually see the little girl pick it up and, you know, yeah. I can't remember if she sips it. I think she does. It's, yeah, she I just does. watched it, but I, that's, that's just a small thing. Right. So um, I have no reason to doubt that she actually did drink some of the hot chocolate at this point. You know what I mean? But, it, I mean, that cup is still full. It still looks like it hasn't been touched. Yeah. And when she, when she pulled that, when he pulls that picture out, she's like, and he's like, well, you know, that is you. <laughs> he's like, this is you. And that's when she's like, ah, what am I? I'm going crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is a, this is like a. Marky is like a personification of her young self, and Marky will explain that later in the episode. I'm you at ten years old. I'm you, and she's really pushing Helen to remember. You got to remember. Can you go back and you know? She's trying to unlock these memories. Um, you know, to, to try to bring them to light. Well, not only that, but now you have Peter there, and Peter's like, uh, hey, do you remember anything about, you know, what happened or whatever? And you're like, and and, and he's, he's awful, I guess, pushy, interrogative, uh, you know, uh, about, hey, what did you see? Do you remember anything? Do you remember this? Do you remember that? And she starts thinking, you know, and she's like, go ahead. Yeah, I know no, you got something to say. No, no, you're, <laughs> you're, you're right on. I just, I thought it was interesting. I'll throw this out to you. If he was keeping tabs on her like he says well i followed you from chicago when she went to go live with an aunt after the death of her mother and then through college and he says i've been keeping tabs over you on you over the last 19 years it was almost like he he doesn't tell he doesn't tell her that here he tells her that when he comes back well i'm just talking in general so because you know we're kind of out of order here in the episode but right just focusing in on it was almost like he was asking her inquisitive questions, trying to get her to remember what happened. It was almost like he was toying with her. If he had, for instance, if he had just come there to, he could easily have solved this problem by just walking in and murdering her. Right. And whether she remembered or not, at any point, at any point, but it's almost like he is, it's almost like he is toying with her so that he can get her to remember it so that he can then murder her. And so right, it's almost, it's almost ridiculous. sick. Yeah, it's almost like a sick right. kind of thing. But also, you know, when he shows her the picture, you know, and then she starts hearing that twinkle, twinkle little star. And, and she kind of stops. Like, he's like, you know, don't you hear that? She's, he's like, I don't hear anything. He's like, she's singing, you know, twinkle, twinkle little star or whatever. And it's this point where they really lost me in the episode because uh, she basically passes out, lays down, whatever. And the guy is gone. Why? This is another continuity thing for me. Why would you leave if you know she's getting her memories back? You should have just offed her right there and left. Yeah. This is something I did not understand. I mean, there's no explanation as why she's laying on this couch after hearing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. You know, you see her, you know, setting up or whatever, like she had fallen, taking a nap or whatever. And the guy is gone. And then Selden, he just reappears. Like... Right after her nap, then like she does, there's no knock on the door. There's no like, hey, I'm back. It's just like all of a sudden she wakes up from this like, yeah, passing out nap slash thing, and then he just reappears in her apartment again. It's weird. Well, not yet. No, 
It's not yet because I think this is where Marky comes back. And this is where they discover that she's, she tells her, she's like, well, won't your mother be worried? She's like, I don't have a mother. Yeah. And then she says, well, you know, that's when she grabs her arm and pulls up her thing and she's got the burn. She's like, I am you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think this is where uh, that, that whole scene just bugs me to death because why does he just leave her there? I mean, so she's like, I'm you, Helen. I'm you. And, and she's like, don't you remember uh, the, the, the man in the uh, – back room you know what i mean and so now her memories is starting to come together you know what i mean yeah and she this is where you have the flashback of you see the men in the back with the shadows which is really well done where he shoves the woman to the ground and he has like a i guess a candlestick or something you know telephone something billy club and hits her mother in the head and then you see him start coming into her room which we won't go into that again because that makes me mad anyway but then she screams and then you see the shadow just start running off the thing and so this is where she's like, now she actually remembers. And now she turns around where Marky was and the guy is standing there. Peter yeah. is now standing there, yeah. which is really creepy to begin with. And he's like, yeah, he's like, I wondered when it would all start making sense. He's like, I'm the one. He's like, I killed your mother. I mean, this guy, why didn't you just tell her this to begin with? He's like, uh, you know, I, I was having some trouble with the books. Your mother was helping me. And, you know, I had to do something about your mother because your mother was basically going to snitch on me about the mis, uh, the miscalculating of the numbers or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, I, I had to do it. So here's, here's where we go. Okay. Helen starts, ah, and she runs over to, she pushes him away and she goes out to the door and she runs across to the neighbor, doo, 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 starts banging on the door. Hey, hey, yeah. And th- if you notice this, she turns. And the guy is right there now. The guy is, he would have had to, why didn't he just come up behind her and grab her from the door? No, he, he like make a beeline like behind her. If you watch the episode, she turns and run to the next door and he's right there and grabs her. And so they start struggling. And then basically the guy during the struggle falls over the balcony, falls down the, the steps, breaks his neck, I guess, uh, and is end up dead on the bottom of the floor. Not a good, not a good stunt double. If you look really closely, no. right. <laughs> you could but definitely tell. Here's what I wish would have happened right there, okay? Let's say he's got Helen and they're struggling or whatever. I wish little Marky would have appeared, you know, just maybe at the top of the steps or something, and he seen her, and the shock from seeing her made him fall down the stairs. Instead of this, there's no way that that guy got pushed off the stairs like that from her. There's just no way going over the railing like that. That's an interest- no, that's an interesting ending. I, I, I like that. Uh, what, having Marky standing there? Yeah, so he I think fi- that would have. I think, to me, that would have been like, you know, it, it would have been like, oh, then maybe he would have stumbled. Instead sure. of this giving this overpowering this man, no, I'm not buying it. That's why I didn't like this episode. Boy, you're really um, critical of that little scene. Oh, man. I, yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I don't know how, she, if you watch it, I don't know how she, top, I mean, there was just a little space like this that he went flying over the rail, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't think she would have had that much strength to do it. Now, I guess adrenaline and all that, but, um, so... Yeah. So then we come to this thing where the cops and everybody are here now here. So the cops have finally arrived and the guy's down at the bottom of the stairs dead. And I thought this was a very, really interesting quote uh, that the doctor gives to, I think it's one of the detectives or the policeman. He's like, um, the, uh, the human imagination is often weird, though sometimes it leads to salvation. And you know, I sit there and I pondered that and I pondered that and it's just a weird quote. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, mm, you know what I mean? Right. What do you think? Well, I was going to, um, 
stick that audio in. Why don't we stick the audio in right here? And it's Go about thirty. It. It's about uh, I don't know how many seconds, and it will get the full quote, and uh, we'll let our listeners uh, see what they think. She's a fortunate woman. She'd be a homicide victim if she were less fortunate. What about that child she keeps talking about? The child is her. At least she conjured up the child. It was a part of her buried deep inside. A memory, a a recollection that finally had to come out. And when it did, it took the form of herself as a child. Weird. Really weird. The human imagination is often weird. Sometimes it means salvation. All right, and there's the uh, quote from the uh, doctor there in its uh, totality. Um, and did you think it was weird that he said, yeah, I think she's, she can stay by herself now? Did you oh, find that weird at all? Um, I, don't, I, I must have missed that. But I do have some, in my observations here, I, I looked something up on WebMD. I, I know it's it just kind of, <laughs> it kind of coincided with what the doctor. Go full circle here. Yeah, because the doctor kind of gives, I think, one of the best, you know, interpretations of, you know, kind of what's taken place in the episode. It says this disassociative amnesia occurs when a person blocks out certain information, usually associated with a stressful or traumatic event, leaving them unable to remember important personal information. With this disorder, the degree of memory loss goes beyond normal forgetfulness and includes gaps in memory for long periods of time or of memories involving a traumatic event. So that's just a simple paragraph of basically what's going on in this episode from a medical perspective. And obviously the doctor there was trying to explain that for the, I think for the viewers, Broad wanted to throw that in just for information. But also at this point, the episode is still not over. That's true. So now you have Helen in the apartment. And she hears twinkle, twinkle, and she's like, oh no, is Marky back? Am I going crazy? <laughs> you know, and she goes over to the door and opens it up, and there's another new girl, uh, little girl sitting on the stairs with a doll. And she's like, oh, you know, it's nice to see you. She's like, oh yeah, I'm new. She's like, are you new? She's like, yeah. She's like, well, I'm very nice, you know, I'm very friendly or whatever. And I think what was very interesting from this interaction to the beginning interaction with Marky is the smile that she gave Marky at the beginning was kind of like a forced smile, like, eh, you know. Eh, you know, kid on the stairs, mm-hmm. give him a half-hearted smile. And this one, if you watch her expression on her face, she actually just, it's its like full of life now. You know what I mean? And I thought that was really well done, too. Like like the weight of the world, she remembered everything, and she was now free. Exactly. Uh, but, yeah. but one thing I didn't, uh, another thing I was kind of drawing for, is since you never actually left the apartment, um, I kind of played that into like that's how she was on the inside. She never really ventured out. She never really uh, mm. left her inner thing. You know, everything was always done. I go to school this time. I do this. I do this. I do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once she, it's like giving her a whole new outlook on life. Uh, but I thought that, and then then my mind really started wondering about something like, well, maybe this is really a psychiatric ward, and that's why the doctor was there. And is, that, is she okay to be by herself now, and all that? You know what I mean? So I went really deep out on that end, and I was like, I had to pull it back. I was like, no, nah, I don't think it's that going that. I'm not going that deep with it. You know what I mean? But but it was something to think about. It did cross my mind um, because she's seeing things. Um, you know, you have doctors there, and then when the doctor said, I think she's okay to be on her own now. That's and I was like, hmm. Well, maybe she was in like general population. Now she's in solitary confinement or whatever. You know what I mean? So, um, but I think I was just overthinking that. But I do think that never going outside it does play a significant uh, thing from what she was experiencing as a child to now, where she's 
you can tell she's a different person. Yeah, you can definitely tell the weight of the world, like you said, it was lifted off her. I never uh, considered the fact about her being indoors and all the ramifications of that and how that played. Um, just a quick bit of trivia: the 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 little girl in the steps at the end of this episode. It is the acting debut. She's uncredited of Morgan Brittany. Uh, she's an uncredited actress uh, in this episode. And she, even though she had several lines uh, at the end, and she actually went on, you can look her up, and she's got um, some uh, acting credits to her her name as well uh, throughout the 70s and 80s and so forth. Yeah, also a uh, lead character, Helen Foley, was also the name of the lead character in the remake of It's a Good Life for the Twilight Zone, the movie in 1983. Kathleen Quinlan portrays Helen Foley, who ultimately befriends the monster. The original segment did not have Helen uh, Foley as a character, but did see Billy Mummy play the monster. Uh, later that same year, director Alvin Ganser would again work with Terry Burnham on the Hawaiian Eye episode with This Ring from 1960, in which she played a character named Patty Selden. And Michael Fox, the doctor, later played Tom Carter in the Twilight Zone Examination Day and a message of uh, a message from Charity in 1985. So, Eric, what's your thoughts on this episode? Just one other quick bit of trivia. Terry Burnham, who played Marky, also shared the screen with Shepard Strudwick again. Later in the same this same year, 1960, uh, she played in a thriller called The Mark of the Hand. Uh, and she actually... Uh, Shepard Strudwick actually played her father in this particular episode. She was his daughter. So, Well, haven't we come full circle with that? Yeah, we have. <laughs> we really have. They, uh, they joined forces again later, I guess, down the road. Uh, my thoughts are, I really like the acting of Terry Branham. I know you would probably disagree. I thought, uh, Helen Foley described it very well. She played a part that was well beyond her years. Um, she was like, Helen described her as solemn and wise. I think that would be a good characterization. You know, she just, she played a part of someone who was much older. She, she she did very well, I thought. Uh, I thought the acting overall was really good by the three main characters. Um, this episode get, takes a lot of heat because there's no unexplainable phenomenon in this particular Twilight Zone. Uh, it's sort of straightforward, kind of with the... It's, it's kind of, I won't say easily, but it's explained uh, pretty thoroughly. There's no major, like, unexplainable twist, if you know what I'm saying, Jimbo. Like, there's no... Something the Twilight Zone twist. Yeah, exactly. Outside of the Twilight Zone, even though the Twilight Zone has to do with the mind and the imagination coming together, you know, and all that. I think, I don't know that that's a fair criticism because, remember, we're only in a season one. So, sort of the criteria for our Twilight Zone episode wasn't fully developed yet. So, you got to have to take that in consideration and, and really understand that it was good that Rod could write a story that was just a good story. It was a good tale. And it didn't necessarily have to have unexplained phenomenon and, and entrenched in sci-fi, if you will. It was just a good tale. I liked it. I don't think it would be top ten. Um, but I don't. it wasn't a bad episode. I enjoyed it. I thought it was, it was pretty good. Your thoughts? I'm not a fan. Um, for one, that little girl was creepy and I didn't care for her acting at all. It was just over the top, ridiculous. And uh, now I will, uh, Janice role as Helen Foley. 
I think that um, if you if if you watch her character, you can see where uh, her acting comes into play. Because I think um, personally, I think that it looked like she was older because of the weight that has been put on her. Mm. So as far as the weight of not remembering stuff, her mother's death, everything that she suppressed. Because when the guy comes, Peter comes in, and you know they don't. He may be a few years older than her, but. They look about, you know, almost the same age. You know what I mean? And I think that's, you know, if he was, if she was only 10 or 11 when her mother got killed and he killed her mother and he was working with her mother, so he's got to at least be 10, 15, 20 years older than her. Yeah. But if you look at him, she looks like she's seen the weight of the world has been on her. Yeah. And I think you can tell that. And, but I think she did a fantastic job. Uh, Peter, I think he was, he was a cruel, unusual man. Uh, he played the part perfectly, but um, just the whole undertone of, uh, you know, after you watch it and you see he's that whole thing with I had a crush on you, that just, it just ruined it for me, man, because I have zero, zero tolerance for any of that kind of stuff. When there's something that's doing harm to children or anything, that's one of my uh, passions in life where I can't stand anything being done to children. Uh, you know, you have the sex trafficking now, you have the missing children, um, any of that stuff, it just gets under my skin and I have a big heart for those kids. I, I agree with you 100%, but I think Rod was trying to maybe bring that to light in his the vehicle that he had. Maybe he was trying to expose things that were normally, in that time and era, suppressed way more than they are now. They're more openly talked well, I mean, about and advocated for those victims a lot more today than they were then. It was In that era, a lot of that stuff was swept under the rug and maybe he was using his show as a vehicle to do that i don't know right it's not it's not the first time it's not the first time we've seen him do something like this right you know what i mean to me it's not a top 10 episode i I would put it i don't even know if it's middle of the pack uh i think it's closer to the bottom third uh than the uh, upper echelon of episodes um and and you know i mean we've seen some really great episodes uh, and next week is no different because that is mm-hmm. the, one of the highlights of season one, in my yes, personal sir. opinion. Uh, definitely in my top three, probably top five. I, it, it could fight for the one or two spot. That's how good it is. It, it's got an argument and all that. So yeah. that will be a stop at Willoughby. Um, I think it has two Twilight Zone twists in it, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, so there you have it, folks. Yep. Stay tuned. That's going to be a good episode next week. And We've already talked a little bit about we're going to put some extra elbow grease in in it because we want it to do it justice. It's it's a really good episode. It's my number two episode. Oh. It's great. Yeah. I'm going to have to see where it falls in with what we've already watched in the rest of the episodes. But, yeah, it's definitely up there. So, with that being said, be on the lookout for next week for episode 30 of Stop at Willoughby. And, Eric, I think that's a wrap on this episode. And cut. Helen Foley, who took a dark spot from the tapestry of her life and rubbed it clean, then stepped back a few paces and got a good look at the Twilight Zone.